wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. We do this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your thinking. To help me today, as always, it's a great pleasure. I introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? Hi, Paul. Great to be here again, fresh from my holiday and my little break. So, yes, feeling energetic today. Fantastic. Where'd you go? Just down to Sorrento for a couple, you know, oh. February. University students uh, are now my kids, so we can take holidays in February instead of January. Oh, so right. very pleasant time to be down what would otherwise be a, a very busy beach area. All oh, right. And a beautiful day today it was. It was. Excellent. So what do we have tonight? Well, look, uh, tonight's a bit like catching up with an old friend, really. Okay. Um, Richard Chambers, who you'll be doing the intro on just in a few moments' time, was actually, I, I knew him back in the early 2000s. In fact, it's quite a uh, uh, serendipitous, this story, because we have a few connections. Right. Richard used to see me uh, in, in practice um, for some chiropractic care at one stage way back when, and then moved uh, out of my area. And then I was working in Keysborough uh, with Kevin Albrick, whose yep. wife... Went on to become a uh, psychologist, right? And has since hooked up with uh, Richard and written this fantastic book. When you uh, say hooked called, up, you mean oh, as in a professional? Oh, book, right. Yes. Sorry, okay, Kevin Albrick. It's all okay. Okay, okay. And it is about mindful relationships. <laughs> fantastic. So, so yes, I'm really looking forward to finding out what's happened in the ten plus years since I uh, last uh, sat down and had a bit of a chat with with Richard. I think tonight's going to be really, uh, really uh, um, eye opening for us both. Fantastic. So let me introduce the man. Dr. Richard Chambers is a clinical psychologist and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness. He consults to a growing number of businesses, educational institutions, and community organizations interested in using mindfulness to enhance well-being and performance. Richard also works at Monash University, spearheading a university-wide mindfulness initiative, which is a world first. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Yeah, great. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So the opening question, can I start by asking you what is mindfulness and how does it affect our physical and also our mental well-being? Mindfulness is in general just being present and engaged, fully present and engaged in each moment of our lives. So, you know, if you think about your hobbies and interests, they're probably things that engage you in one or more of the senses. You know, if you like physical exercise and get into your body, if you like art and you're sort of painting and drawing, there's the visual sense or you know, music for a lot of people, even just being in nature, you know, you know how that kind of brings you into the moment, gets you out of your head, so to speak, and just engaged and present in the moment. That's mindfulness as an everyday experience. And people generally, when they're doing those things, tend to be happy and relaxed. Okay. So, hey, hi, Richard. And- it's... So Anthony here, just just following on from that, and we asked this question, I think, of Steve McKenzie um, a number of uh, uh, podcasts uh, back. Uh, what? How do you uh, decide the difference or discern the difference between, say, meditation and mindfulness? When does mindfulness go into the area of meditation? So mindfulness, as I just said, is this everyday experience that we all have. I mean, we, we all have mindful moments throughout the day. Maybe that's first sip of a coffee in the morning where you're really tasting it, you know, that glass of wine at night or just those moments during the day where where we really drop in and we're present. And 
Meditation is, well, there's mindfulness meditation, which is a type of meditation. And in fact, there are lots of different types of meditation. Really, the word means attention training. And so, you know, we can focus our attention on the body, you know, in, in, in the case of yoga or something like that. And so some people include yoga as a type of meditation. You can repeat a word over and over again in your head, and that's a mantra meditation. I even had someone in one of my courses recently say that, you know, when they pray in the mornings, they were just repeating the words to themselves. Or they're not really sort of connecting with the meaning, but then they started to actually fully engage with the, the words and the meaning. And so prayer is, for some people, a type of meditation. And mindfulness meditation involves engaging the attention on purpose in the present moment. So, you know, focusing on whatever's happening in the senses and noticing when it in a invariably wanders off and then just bringing it back and making that into a practice noticing that it's wandered and coming back over and over again so that's that's mindfulness meditation and when people practice that regularly they find that they start to spend longer and longer periods in the present moment outside of those meditation periods and also become much more aware of when their mind wandered now, speaking of that, I, I as we mentioned earlier, had the uh, pleasure of having a week off and uh, got to read your book. So congratulations to both you and Margie. It was really a very, very enjoyable read. And certainly our listeners out there, if you get a chance to Thanks, get your hands on Mindful Relationships, yeah, definitely do. So, Terrific. yeah, well done. Yep. Uh, one of the things I, I found interesting in, in your book was you talked a little bit about um, – being in default mode or autopilot and um, and how this can sort of change the way we uh, relate to people and the quality of our relationships. Can you go into a little bit of uh, detail about that? Absolutely. Any time we're not engaged and present, so we're not actually you know paying attention to what we're doing with our attention engaged in the senses, we just click off into this default mode. Some researchers have found that we spend about half the time off in that you know, that, that very familiar mode of mind-wandering and mental chatter. And actually, in any moment where either in that default mode or we're engaged and present, or you could say being mindful. And, you know, while it's not inherently bad to, to be sort of mind-wandering and in default mode, you know, we, we have a, a negativity bias in the mind. And, and this evolutionarily, if you think about how the brain evolved, it's a survival tool. And once yeah. upon a time, we had to be constantly scanning the environment for the very real physical threats, you know, saber-toothed tigers and things that were out to kill us. So we were constantly on the lookout for these things. And that's been hardwired into our brain. And so even though there are relatively few saber-toothed tigers around now, when we when our mind clicks off into that mode, we just go passively looking for problems. And that's why we get so caught up in worrying and dwelling on things and judgments and reactions, that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of research now linking default mode with mental health problems and, of course, reduced performance at work because we're not paying attention and we're missing important things. And then, of course, in relationships, you know, if we're in that mode a lot of the time in relationships, you know, maybe not listening to our partner when they speak to us, um, you know, missing some important information, not getting the milk on the way home from work, if we're misinterpreting cues, if we're having reactions, you know, if we're reacting angrily to things they say and do, that can cause a whole lot of problems. I, I did have a little bit of a laugh when I read uh, you were quoting a, um, a study and that was the same study I think we were talking about where something like 47% of people, the time we're in default mode. But uh, when, the people, when the people were surveyed, Paul asked, you know, hmm. when are they absolutely focused? 
making love. Oh, so there you right. go. So it seems to be we're a little bit more focused in that task than most other things we do during the day. Right. I'd better mention that to Ariane. Uh, no, no, there you go. So look, it's look, it's interesting though when we come back to things you're saying there because it go it, mindfulness almost contravenes today's busy world though, doesn't it? Really, Richard. You know, we're we're fast paced. If I look at my day today, we've had meetings, we've had so much on, and like I'm thinking to myself, gulp. I need to take a breath. And have a pause for for a moment because it's been just been full on, pretty much from six a.m. to now. So, is that the skill set being able to sort of recognise that we have to have these sort of pauses during the day, or you know, it, it's it sort of contravenes today's busy world, doesn't it? Of course. Well, not really. Look, pauses are pretty important, but you know, first of all. The problem with busyness is that it, it leads often to reactivity, to automatic pilot, to rushing from one thing to another to another rather than actually fully engaging with one thing. You know, the mind's already moved on five steps ahead and we're thinking about what's next. So the busyness in modern life actually and, this, and, and all the distractions of technology and that kind of, those kinds of things, that actually works against mindfulness you know, and encourages us to be distracted and, and not present. And so to take, take time during the day to pause is a very, very useful thing, you know, and that can, be, that can be a couple of minutes of just in between tasks, just stopping and checking in with the body and maybe letting go of some of the tension that we might be holding, you know, taking a few breaths, might be going for a walk and reconnecting with the senses. You know, some people take time during the day to meditate, you know, maybe five, ten minutes, something like that. But, you know, it can just be a single moment. It can be a single breath. If we notice that we're starting to react, if we're getting tense in the body, and of course mindfulness helps us to notice that more effectively, we could just maybe feel our feet on the ground, take a single breath, and that just puts a bit of a break in the busyness, and particularly the mental busyness, and brings our attention back from somewhere else where we're probably worrying about something or thinking about all the things we've got to do, uh, back into the present moment and sort of resets that stress response. It's interesting, you know, um, I've... I remember the first time I ever became aware of stress. Okay. I was dry. I mean, we all have. The very so I guess first time. The very first time. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm sure I had childhood stress yeah. and exam stress yeah. and, you know, yeah. going through co- sure. college sure. stress. But I remember driving home from work after a really busy day mm-hmm. and just feeling a tension in my body okay. and just mentally saying to myself, this must be stress. All right. Now, I hadn't yet. But, but what you were saying just then, it was, it was very interesting in that you can change it in a breath. I just realized as I had this um, awareness yeah. that I just straightened up my body. Because, yeah. my, you know, we're chiropractors. Yes, we I'm have good posture yet. and Chest, things yep. like this. Changed my body, took a breath, and just those little simple things, and I suppose more so if you're well-trained at it, but even if you're not so well-trained, just taking that moment, changing your posture, how that can change your mental view on a topic of that's stressing you out just like that really quickly well i've known you a fair fair while you know and i've actually never seen you to be too stressed so what was a stressful event well i don't you know i don't even remember, don't I, remember. Just, I think it was just life stress you know <laughs> probably had kids oh, keeping God. job it all just, those always, sorts of things. just sort of hit you okay fair enough we talked a bit earlier richard about performance and can you link with us mindfulness with performance and productivity please yeah sure absolutely uh, you know, when we're in that distracted default mode, we might be sitting in a meeting at work and or you might be working with one of your patients and they're telling you something that's important, but just for a moment your mind's wandered off and you literally just don't hear that piece of information. And so, of course, that's going to have implications later on. 
you know, or if we are quite often we're in this habit of doing one thing, but the mind already being somewhere else, maybe onto the next task or thinking about the other things we've got to do, or just kind of autopiloting through it. You know, we're not really paying attention, so we make more mistakes. There are more biases in our clinical reasoning or our thinking. So there are a whole range of different problems that we can cause ourselves. You know, plus, as I said, we're very likely to get caught up in some kind of some kind of stressful thinking. We stress ourselves out quite often, you know, activating the fight and flight response by misperceiving things as threats. We then, you know, dump adrenaline and cortisol into the bloodstream. And, you know, that, of course, causes wear and tear on the body, but it also scatters the mind. You know, the attention becomes a lot more scattered. Um, you know, the cortex doesn't really, you know, the, the, the cortex actually starts switches off and the amygdala, the fear center in the brain, really starts to run the show. So we can get amygdala hijacked, which makes us more reactive, stops us from remembering things properly. So there's a whole chain of events that really takes place when we're actually just not present and engaged. Okay, so a strong theme that we've talked about in, in all our podcasts is often neuroplasticity and the the ability of the brain to change. Yes. So, and one thing we've come across, Anthony, regards talking about improving the brain's strength or power is trying to engage in novel or different experiences. Mm. You know, we've talked about that quite heavily as, as a means to try and be it intellectually or even socially just to improve the brain its function can you tie in novel experiences so new experiences that 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 we that the brain goes through as a means to maybe improve mindfulness and lessen maybe the default sort of pattern yes absolutely well first of all i'd say that there are certain default circuits in the brain right okay so, okay yeah so when and we're in that default mode, we're activating certain brain areas, the default circuits, and they're becoming stronger because of neuroplasticity. Any time, you know, we've got this use it or lose it brain, right? Yes. Any time we actually yes. bring our attention into the present moment, notice when it wanders off and then bring it back without any evaluation or judgment, we activate other brain areas like the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and these are key areas for learning, for functioning well. And, of course, because we're activating them, we're strengthening them, and meanwhile, because we're not activating the default circuits, they're just starting to atrophy. They're starting to weaken all by themselves. So that's really the neuroplasticity behind mindfulness in general. And one of the things that we can do with mindfulness is just bring an attitude of curiosity and interest mm. to yes. what you know is quite sort of mundane. I mean, meditating, we might choose the breath as an anchor. So, you know, we might just bring an attitude of interest to our breathing and rather than just sort of thinking, yeah, whatever, you know, breathing in, breathing out, okay, I get it, we start to notice that each breath is actually subtly different and we maybe start to notice the pause or the, or the, the moment where the breath turns around and the texture of it, whether it's rough and coarse or smooth and silky. And so we, we actually start to cultivate or actually rediscover the innate quality of curiosity that we had when we were kids. And that actually serves to deepen our, our engagement with what we're doing. It deepens our attention. And you're talking about novel things, and, of course, they do that, they do that naturally. You know, if we do something new, if we're learning a new task, if we go to a new place when we're travelling, for instance, you know, if we drive home from work a different way to the way we normally go, we're just going to be more engaged. We're going to notice new things. We'll, we won't be on autopilot so much, you know, because we have to pay attention to where we're going and we'll notice things that are interesting to us. 
So we can do novel things. That's one way of deepening the engagement and facilitating that neuroplastic brain change. But with mindfulness, there's a, there's, there's another way as well. What we can actually do is just keep doing the same things that we're always doing, but really pay attention. That deepens the engagement and that increases the amount of neuroplastic change in the brain. It's so interesting. And, you know, Anthony, just with what Richard said, it just reminds me of patients that I see that age really well. So patients who are over 80 and now the common thread with those patients is that they have the curiosity of a five-year-old. Absolutely. Right? They are curious. They ask questions. Yep. They're doing um, U3A activities. They're doing new stuff. They're just so curious versus those perhaps who don't age so well where – Doing the same thing over and over again. Same routine. And they're often the people too who are, who don't do well after retiring because yeah. they've just done that same thing and they've been like yes. a bit like the Pavlov dog type thing. Yep. Yep. Yes, it's curiosity is so important. In fact, that's a, a, a really, I think, important thing in terms of differentiating being mindful – and just concentrating hard. Yeah, okay. Because concentrating hard, and maybe, Richard, you can sort of uh, uh, go into this a little bit more, but concentrating feels is work. You yeah. Know, mindfulness is a, has a lightness to it, and, and curiosity is just a beautiful way to describe that. And probably clarity comes with the mindfulness versus the work hard. Is that what you think, Richard, in regards to what Anthony's saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we practice mindfulness, we actually we do develop, we, we cultivate concentration. You know, obviously, if you... Take some simple anchor. Like the, I'll, I'll continue talking about the breath. So you bring the attention to the breath. You don't change it. You don't manipulate it. You don't think about it. You just feel it. You notice it coming and going and become interested in it and curious in it. And, of course, as we do that, we actually start to, you know, the attention will rest for longer and longer periods on the breath. And, and we, we do cultivate concentration. And that's then a, a generalizable kind of portable Quality, so we'll find that we can focus for longer periods on our work, or really listen to people when we're talking to them, or you know, just be more in the moment. And so that concentration is a very important part of mindfulness. But it's just part of the picture, actually. And what's equally important, or in some ways maybe even more important, is the awareness that we develop. You know, because as we're focusing on the breath, every time the attention wanders off, and we notice that, and we bring it back, we're developing awareness of where our attention is from moment to moment and that's actually a very very powerful thing and with mindfulness meditation and mindfulness in general rather than trying to force the attention to remain in one place and hold it there which of course takes a whole lot of effort and rather than judging ourselves or getting annoyed when it wanders off which again wastes more energy we learn to simply notice when it's wandered and then just bring it back. And we practice doing that. And, of course, anything we practice, we get better at. So, so we practice doing that. We form those new connections in the prefrontal cortex. And then we find that throughout the day we're just more able to pay attention. So we, as I already said, we take that concentration with us. And we also take that awareness with us. So we can just notice, you know, we're sitting in a meeting and our mind wanders off for a moment. And then we think, hang on, I need, to, I need to listen to this. So we just bring our attention back. And so that awareness is really powerful. Plus, of course, we can notice, you know, what's happening in the body and the mind from moment to moment. So we can notice if we're hold, starting to hold chronic tension, if we're, if we're, you know, having some kind of emotional reaction or if a fight and flight response is kicking off because we're thinking about something that's stressing us out or if we're sitting, you know, with bad posture or moving in a way that's not, you know, not good for the body. So it's a very powerful thing, that awareness. Uh, 
Now, in your book, uh, you talk, obviously, it's uh, a lot to do with using mindfulness to improve relationships with your spouse, with your children, office workers, friends, and so on. Uh, one of the key elements of uh, a good relation is uh, that connection and that intimacy. And obviously, that uh, you mentioned the word before about being non-judgmental when you're looking and making mm-hmm. these observations. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that non-judgmental non-judgmental attitude is absolutely imperative when you're looking at a, a mindful relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Margie and I, in our, book, in our book, we talk about cultivating intimacy. And by that, we mean the ability to be really aware of and present to all parts of ourselves. So, you know, quite often we're sort of, there are certain feelings and parts of our personality that we don't really like and we avoid them or we judge them and we... And, and, and so quite often we don't have a lot of intimacy with ourselves. And mindfulness helps us to, first of all, tune in, to really drop in and, be, and start to become more familiar with what's going on beneath the surface. But, of course, if we start to notice some part of our, ourselves, some belief or some reaction or some emotion, and then we, we reflexively judge it, which we do a lot of the time, you know, we don't want to experience it or we think it's bad or whatever, we don't develop any true kind of intimacy with ourselves and so what we can do is actually bring an attitude of, of awareness or mindfulness to it which is not judgmental and also cultivate attitudes like loving kindness and self-compassion or what's commonly termed heartfulness which is really the flip side of mindfulness and, that, and, that, and that's about the relationship that we have with things so it's really an attitude of unconditional friendliness with ourselves so as we start to tune in get, get in touch with ourselves and, and hold all parts of ourselves in this in this sort of loving awareness. We start to feel more whole and integrated and less reactive, and then and we can start to allow that to ripple out to others. So we can start having that same kind of relationship with other people. You know, if, if there are parts of ourselves that we that we're not comfortable with and we're not you know we're, we're not good with intimacy, you know, with ourselves, it's very hard to have that with other people. So we'll tend to have superficial relationships with them. But if but if we can really you know get in touch with ourselves and Really hold all parts of ourselves in loving awareness, then we can start to have that with our partners, our kids. We can let that ripple out a bit further and have better relationships at work and, of course, then into society and communities, that kind of thing. When you're uh, wor- working with clients who, who might see you or, or, or Margie for these sorts of issues, is it is it tend to be a one-on-one? Do you have to sort of, you know, work on the husband and get them right and then get the, get the wife sorted before they come in together or is it something that's done jointly together? Oh, look, there, there are all kinds of ways that we work. Um, both Marg and I, you know, we work with individual clients uh, and, and that can be done with them. You know, if one person changes the relationship with themselves, it's automatically going to change their relationship with everybody around them and have ripple effects. Yeah. Sometimes couples come in or families and we might do sort of couples work or I don't work with Marg, obviously, but I'm just sort of talking about the, the kind of work that we do. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it might be couples or whole families. And, of course, we even teach this in groups. I run a lot of mindfulness groups and mindful self-compassion groups. So you can teach this in a group format. So lots of different ways that we can do it. Richard, when we talk about our digital world at the minute, there are certainly pros and cons. And, uh, you know, some cons would be situations where I've had patients who have been been in the clinic and, there might be two siblings who have actually texted each other one metre away instead of actually talking to one another. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, hang on, you know, and actually in some cases, Anthony, we say to them, you know, next time you come in, 
there's going to be no device. And I swear they are struggling. It's struggle street. That's like you have to communicate. You have to talk. You know, it's it's really interesting how they react. They think it's very old-fashioned, don't they? Yeah. Just walking it's like, around without a mobile phone or uh, some, some device. You see people on dates now, you know, they're sitting opposite each other on their phones, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, people using their phones, terrible. But on the other hand, I suppose, there must be some apps there that would help with mindfulness. Can you give us some an insight? Absolutely. So, I mean, technology is not good or bad, right? It's how we use it. So, there are ways of using it with mindfulness and there are ways of using it very unmindfully. And, and unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of traps with, with technology, you know, notifications and alerts distract us from what we're doing. So, yeah. switching them yeah. is actually a really good idea, to be honest. I mean, if people that do that as an experiment find that they actually become more productive because they're less distracted, they're less stressed. And they just enjoy their life a little bit more because they're more in the moment. That's great advice. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, that's why a, are you looking at me, Anthony? No, no, no. <laughs> Mr. Facebook. <laughs> oh, yeah. And actually, yes, yeah, so I was involved in developing an app called Smiling Mind. So there are a number of mindfulness apps around now. Smiling Mind was designed to make mindfulness accessible to young people, although we now have about a million downloads and a lot wow. of them are adults, actually. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an app with guided mindfulness meditations. It's a free app. So people get it, put it on their phone or their device, and then anytime they want, they can just press play on a guided meditation that just kind of steps them through it, you know, from one minute to 45 minutes in length. And the rationale behind it was, you know, we, there's an app for everything now, right? So yeah. our hope is that people get up in the morning and they check the weather and they check Facebook, maybe they check their emails, and then they meditate you know, and then they get onto a different app, right? So it's just something that's on the phone. So it's kind of co-opting technology um, to actually in, in, increase mindfulness. So, so these, these uh, exercises you have on, on your app, are they like little five-minute type exercises or, or what's actually involved? Yeah, so they range. The shortest one is one minute because, you know, you can just have a little pause for a minute. So you press play and it just guides you through, okay, just pause what you're doing, check in with yourself, maybe notice your body, let go of the tension in your body, take a couple of breaths as a way of grounding yourself and then get on with your day. So, you know, that there are one-minute practices, there are five-minute, ten-minute meditation practices, all the way up to 45 minutes in length. So if you want to really sit and, and, and spend quite a lot of time cultivating mindfulness, you know, you can do a 45-minute meditation every day. So but now you um, better, it you... sort of meets with you better say that. That sounds fantastic. You better say the name of that app again because I know I'm sure our listeners are wondering right now, mm. what was it, Smiley App or Smiley, what was it again? It's Smiling Mind. Smiling Mind. So right. without an S, just Mind. Yes. We've only got one Mind. Okay. Smiley Mind. We'll have that up on our Facebook anyway. Excellent. And, and Richard, you know, some, some apps, they look at brain waves and theta waves or beta wave yep. function. Does this app make applications to that or...? At all? No, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. Look, there's there's not a lot of evidence for that. I mean, right. really good, rigorous evidence. A lot of a lot of people say that they experience benefit from that. But you know what? That's going to make you dependent on an app, isn't it? If you've got to press play on an app to sort of change your brain waves every time, that yep. makes you dependent on the product. Yep. Whereas, I mean, with mindfulness, you know, in the beginning, it's like training wheels. You know, if if most people sat for five minutes and just set a time. They'd spend four minutes and 59 seconds in default mode, right, daydreaming, and then they might spend a second or two actually being mindful. So in the beginning, it's a really great idea to have a guided meditation that just 
regularly reminds you, okay, just bring, just notice if your attention's wandered, bring it back to your breath. Don't judge yourself, you know, just keep coming back, that kind of thing, really those prompts. Okay. But then once people become familiar with that, they can stop using the app. It's like training wheels on a bicycle, you know, you use it at the start, then you turn them up a little bit, so maybe using the app every second time. And then eventually, you know, people can just actually start setting a timer on their phone um, and maybe just come back to the app at other times, you know, to explore different types of meditation practice. So that's in some ways a lot more useful than, you know, needing some kind of binaural or some kind of brainwave manipulation app. That's certainly empowering, isn't it? That's, that's terrific. Now, speaking of um, mindfulness uh, exercises, are you happy to take our uh, listeners through a, a little example of that? Absolutely. So, for everyone who's listening, if you if you're driving a car, this is uh, <laughs> either pull over or listen to this next part um, at some other stage because <laughs> it's important to be mindful while you're driving. When we're going to be mindful on something else, so over to you, Richard. <laughs> Look, there, I guess there are two exercises that I'd like to weave together, and, and these are from the book Mindful Relationships. Um, one of them involves just checking in, you know, and we often forget to do that. There might even be listeners right now who are noticing that for the whole day they haven't actually stopped and checked in and noticed how their body is and their mind is and what's happening emotionally. So that's a very, very useful and powerful thing to do, just to take stock and to do that regularly throughout the day. Um, particularly good in, in relationships, you know, especially if we've got conflict or something happening like that, always good just to check in, notice what's going through my mind, what's, what's happening in my body. And the second thing that I'll weave in is actually cultivating an attitude of heartfulness, so getting in touch with attitudes of loving kindness, compassion, which really are about unconditional friendliness. So maybe just for, you know, four or five minutes, I might just take the listeners through that. That would be fantastic. Away we go. Good. So to start, I mean, the easiest thing to do is just to bring the attention to the body. So we might just take a moment to check in. So... Perhaps noticing the posture, noticing the way that we're sitting or standing or lying and just making sure that we're, that we're sitting comfortably or that we're in a comfortable position. And taking a couple of moments just to really check in, maybe closing the eyes if that helps or half closing them, you know, as long as we're not driving, of course, you know, half closing the eyes and just bring the attention to the body. Just... Noticing the physical state of the body. Are you tired? Are you energized? Are you tense or relaxed? If there is tension in the body, you're just noticing where that's being held. See if you can notice the actual muscles that are holding that tension. And if you can do that, just noticing if you can start to let it go. Can't force the body to relax, but we can let go of tension once we notice it. And perhaps noticing the mind in the same way. You know, is, is the mind busy with thoughts? Is it quiet? Is it sleepy and dull or is it alert? Just noticing that. And if we get caught up in thinking, just noticing that and just, in, and just bringing the attention back to the body. Maybe noticing the really obvious sensations like the contact that the body's making with the chair or the floor, the pressure. Perhaps noticing the movement of the breath in the body. And just letting the awareness, the attention scan 
informally throughout the body, just noticing what's there, noticing what captures the attention, what sensations are there. If we go a little bit deeper, see if we can notice what emotions are around, if any. And if we, if we notice any emotions, any feelings, just perhaps naming them to ourselves or just really just feeling them as they are. Where do we feel them in the body? What do they feel like? Just noticing that. This is a way of checking in. And if the mind wanders, we just bring it back over and over again to the body. That's just that basic principle of mindfulness. And so that's just, that's checking in. So that's a very useful thing to do throughout the day. And that's the first part of this practice that I'm going to be taking us through. I feel totally checked in. That's a good start. Well done. Very good. <laughs> yeah. But that's a very powerful thing to do throughout the day. Maybe start the day like that and just keep doing it because often like we carry physical tension or we have emotions that we're not aware of and it's very useful to be aware of them. So that's a good thing to do. And now the second part of this practice is we're going to cultivate heartfulness. And so what we might do is just with our eyes closed, just bring to mind someone who we, who we love, who we have a really good connection with. So it might be a partner, a family member, a child. For some people it might be a trusted friend. It might be a pet. It might be a spiritual figure. Just to somebody who we have a really good connection with, a good relationship with. And, and if we, you know, like in most relationships, if, if we have different feelings towards this person, just focusing on the, the sense of connectedness, the feelings of love, the goodwill. And as we really see this person or sense them in front of us, you know, picturing their face, just tuning into any sensations in the chest, in the heart, tuning into the sense of connectedness with this person, wishing them well, just wishing that they're happy. We might even make the wish, may you be happy. Sensing how they want the same thing for us. And noticing what that feels like in the body. That sense of connectedness and goodwill. And then even if we even if we let go now of the image of this person and bring our attention more to ourselves, we might find that we can just stay with that sense of goodwill. Perhaps just feeling it in the chest, in the heart, or we might make wishes for ourselves. We might even just experiment with saying, may I be happy? May I be free from suffering? You know, from illness and difficulty, free from suffering. And just making that wish for ourselves. Maybe just repeating that to ourselves a few times. May I be happy? 
May I be free from suffering. And just noticing what it's like to relate to ourselves in that way. And again, this is something that we can practice. We can do this as often as we need to throughout the day. And the more we do it, the more it will rewire parts of the brain that make this into just a, a spontaneous everyday experience where we'll just naturally be able to connect with this sense of goodwill for ourselves. And we can then start to allow that to radiate out to other people. Now, I might not do it now, now in this particular exercise it's in the interest of time but you might imagine if you spend a little bit of time bringing that attitude to yourself and making those wishes you could then bring to mind people other people who you love and have a good connection with people who are sick people who really need some good wishes you can even do it with you know bring to mind strangers the barista at the coffee shop around the corner or someone that works in the corral next to you um, you can even, in fact, bring to mind difficult people. You know, not not necessarily, you know, your worst enemy, someone who's going to immediately close your heart, but just someone that you have some difficulty with. And you can maybe notice the tensing and withdrawing in the body, and and then actually just start to well, first of all, recognise that happy people tend to be easy to be around, and you know that yet the difficult people in your life tend to be quite unhappy. And so it makes sense to wish happiness for them. And so we can start to send those wishes out allow that to radiate out as a feeling from the heart or even just make wishes, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering. So so anyway, so that's the exercise. All right, we're, we've woken up now, I think, have we, Paul? Oh, just sorry. That was, that, that was, that was yeah. really lovely. Thank you, uh, Richard. It's, and I think it's so important with something like mindfulness for it to be an experience rather mm. than just a, you know an academic idea. Mm. Um, in, in sort of summing up, is there three take-home points that you would really like our listeners to, to perhaps really latch onto? Oh, definitely. First of all, that mindfulness is really simple. You know, a lot of people complicate yeah. it mm. and talk about it in all kinds of strange ways. And one of the things that Craig Hassett and I do at Monash is, is we're really working to just develop the language around it, just to communicate it in a really simple, practical way. And so if your listeners could, could recognize that mindfulness is just being present and engaged in each moment of their life, you know, with attitudes of non-judgment and friendliness, that kind of thing, but it's just about being really present. And so we're already practicing it. And so people might just think about, you know, yeah, that's true. When I drink my coffee in the morning, I do taste those first couple of sips. And maybe they could taste the whole coffee. Or maybe they realize that when they're in the gym, on the treadmill with the headphones in, what, you know, reading the magazine, watching the TV, that's a very different experience to, you know, being outside running or playing sport or doing Pilates or yoga and so maybe start to exercise differently. So the first point is that mindfulness is just being present and engaged. It's everyday experience. Um, the second point is that we can practice it. It's, a, it's, it's an innate quality, but it's also something that we can practice and cultivate through mindfulness meditation of course, we can practice it in any moment just by being present and engaged, you know, tasting our food, listening when we're talking to someone, that kind of thing. But with the meditation that we've been talking about, just small amounts. You know, you don't have to do an hour a day or 45 minutes a day. You know, we quite often, um, I often get people to do five minutes twice a day. So 10 minutes of meditation a day, you know, over, over a week, people immediately start to notice benefits of that, you know, just being a little bit more present or at least more aware of when their attention wanders off. So small amounts of meditation, very beneficial. Um, and the third point would be that it's not 
not about relaxing or quietening the mind. You know, that, that can happen sometimes. You know, if we start to focus our attention on one thing, like, the, like our breath or the taste of our breakfast, and we get our attention out of the busyness of default mode, quite often the mind does calm down and we do feel relaxed. But that's a side effect of mindfulness. You know, it's actually not the point. And if we think that mindfulness is going to make us relaxed, then the first time we sit and meditate and it doesn't because we've drank too much coffee or we're really stressed with work, we're going to start thinking, hang on, what's going on? This doesn't work anymore. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe mindfulness, you know, whatever. So it's not about relaxing. So these things happen sometimes, but mindfulness is really about getting more in touch with what's actually going on and learning to relate to that in, in, in a way where we have, you know, where we accept it and allow it rather than react to it. So that would be the three, I think that would be the three tips. Yeah, the three, three very, very good tips, absolutely. Excellent. Now that's fantastic. So look, also, Richard, what we'd like to do is, because Anthony and I know we're, we're very privileged to have uh, some people like yourself with your experiences come and talk to our listeners at Backchat and we'd love to know an, an impactful, pivotal moment in your life, I suppose, that perhaps has led you to sort of move towards this direction of clinical psychology and influencing the masses. You know, with the work you're doing at Monash is uh, influencing not only those who are going through the university, but then they influence others. It's It's got a, a massive ripple effect. So... Can you tell us an impactful experience that sort of influences influence you over time? Absolutely. I mean, I it's, it's a really interesting thing, you know, like the, those sliding door moments. I was in my final year of my undergraduate psychology degree, my arts degree at Melbourne Uni, and I remember I just I started just feeling a bit depressed. You know, I was kind of anxious and just starting to feel a little bit depressed, and I just decided to just to really clean up my act, you know, so I made some lifestyle changes, started exercising more and became vegetarian for a while and, you know, and, and started to sleep, you know, get, get better sleeping hours and really just trying to do what I could. And I remember a friend of mine was just happened to be going along to this meditation session. I mean, back then this was 1999. So mindfulness didn't exist. There were certainly no mindfulness apps or mindfulness, you know, mindful universities or anything like that. So you had to go looking for meditation. My friend was just going to this drop-in meditation session. He said, asked me if I wanted to come. I said, sure, that sounds great. So I went along. And funny thing, I mean, he, he never went back. He came the one time. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. And I just kept going every week. I thought, this, this is awesome. You know, there's something in this. You know, immediately I just felt sort of a little bit more present and happier and quite quickly noticed I'd be sitting in my lectures at uni and I'd actually be listening to what was being said and I'd notice my attention wander off and notice some pretty girls in the room but then I'd just bring my attention right back to the front. And I started actually, I remember I went into an exam and I knew what was on the exam for pretty much the first time in my life. I was like, oh, this is actually quite, this is working. And so that was that was how the meditations started for me and I pretty much just kept the practice going it's probably in its 17th year now you know early on it's sort of on and off and that's kind of normal but more on than off over the last 10 to, to sort of 12 years um, and then I was in a actually in a, in a bookstore in the north of India one time just walking up in Dharamsala where the Dalai Lama lives I was walking between Dharamsala and this local town called Dharamkot and I just walked into a little bookstore and I probably had about 40 50 books in there and I just picked one off the shelf and it was this book called Healing Emotions. And it's actually a, it's a transcript of a, a conference that happens every couple of years called Mind and Life, a big conference where originally it was the Dalai Lama and some of his monks and some neuroscientists and psychologists having a dialogue. 
now there are, you know, Christian contemplatives and all kinds of religions represented and psychologists and doctors and, I mean, and all kinds of scientists, yeah, quantum physicists, that kind of thing. But I just picked this book up and it was on meditation research and, this, and the science of mindfulness, really, back before it was called mindfulness. So I thought, man, and this is pretty interesting stuff. You know, if, if I can do this, if I can study this, I'm going to continue on with my psych degree, which I was pretty uninspired by at that point in time. And so... I came back and I was knocking on doors and trying to find a supervisor who would let me study meditation. Everyone's just looking at me like I had two heads, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> meditation. And, it was, and again, I had another sliding doors moment because I bugged the absolute hell out of this dude called Nick Allen at Melbourne Uni. Because by that point, I thought, you know what, I just need to go to America. That's that's where this is happening. So I need to get myself, you know, first class honours, right? In my, in my, in my honours yep. year, I need to get, yeah. to get a high distinction average. And I, and I asked around and people told me, yeah, this guy, Nick Allen, all of these students do really well. So I bugged him and he said, look, I can't take you on. I'm overquoted. There's no way. And he's a really overcommitted kind of guy. But, you know, I just uh, I eventually harassed him so much. He said, look, come in, sit down. I'm, I'm going to point you in the right direction. Can't take you on. And I sat down and said, look, I just want to go to America because all I want to study is meditation. And wouldn't you know it, but like literally a month beforehand, he set up the first mindfulness study in Australia, which was looking at mindfulness for, for depressed young people at, at Origin Youth Health, which is a youth mental health service in Parkville. And so it was just one of those moments he said, you know what, be my student. And it sort of began there. So wow. that's, that's the story of my meditation. And then, of course, you know, working with it and teaching it. That's a great story. And how far mindfulness and meditation has come and how far you've uh, taken yeah. it as well, Richard. So awesome story, but uh, congratulations on all that you've achieved over those years since uh, we first uh, met. Now, now, Richard, I, I did test Anthony on his recall, which was, you know, I have to say, Anthony, was pretty poor. You couldn't recall the trigger that led to your moment of stress. Do you recall when at that end of your undergraduate or just before your undergraduate what that – sort of trigger was, Richard, for you? Was it just an uncertainty maybe where you were going? Just curious. Oh, I think it was I think it was a whole lot of things. Right. There's things happening in my family. I okay. think it was definitely uncertainty. I mean, I was an art student. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of certainty in an arts degree, actually. Right. <laughs> I'd majored in psychology, but I wasn't particularly inspired by what I was learning. And, you know, my, my lifestyle my, was just out of balance. You know, I wasn't eating well or exercising properly and just, just, wasn't, just wasn't happy and wasn't very motivated and inspired. And so that was really the trigger for that, I think. And luckily, you know, just managed to find something really powerful that has been a very sort of healing force. And, of course, it's not just about recovering from that. I mean, you know, very quickly as well, what kept me going with the meditation is as well as feeling less depressed and, and less anxious, just, you know, food tasted tasty. Here and you know, I just noticed the way the sun was shining on the trees, and I was just more connected to other people, and you know, excellent, better, and that kind of thing. So, a whole lot of things like that were really useful. I think it's a really interesting story, then, Anthony, because we're going to have a lot of listeners who are perhaps going through some challenges and uncertainties, lack of clarities in their lives. Yep. And it's really nice to to hear downstream where someone like Richard had that. And look what he's done now. He's he's moved so far forward from that, but also shared the rawness of the difficulties he was going through and then worked hard, found his niche, found his passion, and now kind of lives the dream what he's doing. He's a great advocate for mindfulness, that's for sure. Thank you, Richard, for tonight. Now, Richard helped develop Smile in Mind, a free mindfulness app with which has one million downloads. He's also collaborated with the development of the Mindfulness for Wellbeing and Peak Performance online course 
which can be found on the futurelearn.com website. That's through Monash with my colleague Craig Hassett. So it's a really great course, free online course that people can do. Excellent. So there's a free download from the from the app as well as the course online as well, which is terrific. He's also published two books, Mindful Learning and Mindful Relationships in a, and a number of journal articles. Thank you, Richard, for tonight. It's been fantastic. Anthony? Yeah, great, great episode. Really enjoyed it. Excellent. It's been great. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, the w's.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.